2 Corinthians 6, Paul is continuing his discussion from chapter 5, really even before that, on their new character as new creations in Christ, which is like Christ's character who gave himself for all, and a new character as ambassadors of Christ who now have that ministry of reconciliation. God has reconciled us to himself through the work of his son. And he said, you're now ambassadors and God pleads through you or through us to the world to be reconciled to God through the work of Christ. So he's continuing that in our context, verse one, where he says, we then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So Paul acknowledges that they are, he says, workers together with him. Some people argue whether that's workers together with Paul or with God. Obviously, it has to be God, even through the clear and present context, because Paul was working with God. Paul wasn't, uh, you know, a mercenary out there or something like that. So you're working together with God either way. Paul acknowledged this in 1 Corinthians 3, 9. He said, we are God's fellow workers. This whole thing is, it's an incredible privilege that you and I can not only be saved, but be invited into the purposes of God in saving others and working his kingdom uh, that is going to come and be eternal. So it's a blessing that we get to be a part of that. And as such, Paul pleads with them then that to that he didn't want them to allow the grace of God in their lives, which brought them into such an honored and privileged position as ambassadors working with God to be in vain or to become worthless. And he quotes now from Isaiah 49, 8, saying, In an acceptable time I have heard you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. It's speaking of Israel. Also, it's a messianic psalm there. But he's pressing on them the idea that they had been heard by God and they lived in a time of God's grace. Uh, even Jesus, if you remember from Luke 4, stepped into the synagogue and began to read a passage and stopped just at the point that began to address God's judgment in the world and then said to the crowd, this scripture that you just heard is being fulfilled right in your ears. The idea was that crowd was supposed to acknowledge that they were living in a particular day and time of God's work in the world. And Paul is saying the same thing here, that you and I live in a particular day of God's work in the world, the day of God's grace, the day where the messages be reconciled to God, the day where there's time for people who are enemies of God to be reconciled to God and become sons and daughters of God, where he's extending an incredible grace to the world. He's not describing a loss of salvation here. He's exhorting in a way that was really common to most of his letters. Paul would always lay out the doctrinal truths, and then he would instruct them on top of those doctrinal truths and exhort them to live in that way. So you're reconciled, he says, be reconciled. He would teach you're dead in Christ, so put off the old man. You've been adopted, so live like sons and daughters of God. He would do this over and over and over again, and he's basically just trying to say to them, I just laid out kind of the doctrinal format. Now he's giving a moral exhortation here. And the reality is they're not supposed to just understand these things. It's supposed to have a real effect in their lives. All Christians should live in proper relation to their profession. If we say we're Christians, that's little Christ's. That's the idea. It was a mocking term, actually, at first. It seems like in Antioch. You're just a person who follows Christ. He does everything that Christ does. Yeah, that's, that's the whole point. We have his life. I profess to be made new, so live new. 
I, I profess to be a follower of his, to have his life, to have him living in me. Well, he's a person who gave his life for others. I profess to be reconciled to God. Well, live, be reconciled to God then. And Paul would continually give these types of exhortations to them. And he spoke the same way of himself. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Obviously, Paul's not worried about the loss of his personal salvation. But he was worried about God's grace being wasted in his life or being in vain, or not coming to full purposes, or being fallen from or set aside, as he talks about in Galatians 2. He was concerned they would set aside the grace of God or fall from the grace of God and go back to the law. And in our lives, what Paul wants from us and from them, or what the Holy Spirit would want from us writing through Paul, is are we aware of the day and age that we live? Are we aware that we live in an acceptable time where we're heard of God, we have salvation, and he will help us if we come to him? This Corinthian church, were they aware of these things? Did they realize the wonderful day of God that they lived in? And he's saying this to believers. That's the context. It can be said to unbelievers. Certainly a mixed multitude, you would say the same thing. Are you aware that you live in the day and age? of God's grace extended to man, where there comes a time where that grace is no longer extended. And it will be a time of God's judgment in the world, just like with Noah's Ark. There was a day the door was shut. But for believers, we've been saved, and we don't want to waste the work that God has done in our lives. We've all done that in certain scenarios. We've all done it in certain sections of our life. But if we've been wasting God's grace in our lives, we should recognize today, if I need help, and I don't want to waste God, he saved me, he gave himself for me, he redeemed me from hell and from my sin, I live in a day and age where God can hear me and help me. And Paul is exhorting them to recognize today's the accepted time. Today's the day of salvation. This is the day you live in. And that life should then look like something, as he begins to describe in verse 3. For we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. The whole thrust of the exhortation was to live in a dignity proper to the message, to the cross, and to the new life in Jesus Christ. Our lives should be fitting. There's a weird proverb that said a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. The idea is at least you don't put apples of gold in something not fitting, right? You put them in settings of silver. If that's true in words and art, the idea here is what of us in terms of our profession? We have divine life. We profess to be saved from our sin. We profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, to have him living in us. We profess the incarnation, the death, and the resurrection of the Son of God and the Spirit of God in our lives. Let those who name the name of Christ depart from iniquity, Paul would say. We're saying something. There should be a reality behind those words. In Philippians 1.27, Paul would say, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's the same principle, just said in a different way. Our, our lives should be worthy of the gospel of Christ, fitting for it, proper to it. If I'm living in a way that it would be awkward for me to turn to somebody and give them the gospel, there's an issue. If somebody would be shocked in your family or at work if you gave them the gospel, there's an issue. And the, the exhortation that Paul wants them to realize is you've been called into this incredible thing, you've been saved, but then you've been given the grace to be a part of the ministry of reconciliation of God calling fallen human beings back to himself and saving them for eternity. So we can't give offense in anything so that our ministry would be blamed. I shouldn't live in a way that's unworthy of the gospel of Christ. People will reject it, 
but we shouldn't give our hearers easy excuses to reject our message. To look at us and say, it's not even real for you. Or it doesn't make much of a difference with your attitude. (laughs) You say you live like Jesus. But what about not only our message, our lives? People might not like our message. People didn't like Jesus' message. But they didn't have anything to say about his life. Again, they looked at him. And they were going to stone him, and he say, would say, why are you going to stone me? What work have I done? They said, not for any of your works, but because you being a man make yourself out to be the son of God. It was his message they didn't like. It wasn't his life, and we're supposed to have the same tone and tenor. A minister of Jesus Christ is supposed to be that way, not just a professional minister, any saved person who's been given the life of Christ and is now an ambassador of Jesus. So, in verse 4, Paul is going to begin now to kind of illustrate what he's talking about through his own life experience, which obviously is pretty remarkable. I will say this. I'm going to read through this section. You can read through this and feel like, I'm not a real Christian. Because, like, almost none of these things are true of me. Now, the point is, Paul... Paul didn't choose all these things for himself. The idea is this is where God had him. And he became an example of these things in a particular way. The reality is in all of these things, we're going to find them in some measure in our lives. And what should be shown in relation to this whole list Paul gives out here is something of the life of Christ in relation to to these otherworldly kind of influences and realities. So I'm going to read through, don't become disheartened, and then we'll go through and talk. Verse 4, but in all these things we commend ourselves as ministers of God, in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not yet killed, as sorrowful and not yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, having nothing, yet possessing all things. The idea here is, again, in some measure, bigger or smaller, the life of Christ is going to come up against all these kind of various issues and forces in life. Paul, because of who he was and what God called him to and the life he lived, faced a very wide range of things in his own particular life. And what he says, and in all these things... In life, in all of its facets and ways, we commend ourselves, again in verse 4, as ministers of God. This is how we show we're a minister or a servant of God. In all these scenarios, as they say, you put the tea in the hot water and then you see what kind of tea it is. These scenarios show what type of ministers we are. Life shows what type of ministers we are. Sometimes... We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt uh, a little too much. Like there's the real you, and then there's the phenomenal you. The phenomenal you did something really good to their neighbor like four years ago. But you might have been, you know, not actually that nice the rest of the time. But you have a lot of excuses for that. But we can always say the thing that we really were, you know. Like people do this in the world. They do this all the time. You know, there's a guy who... You know, it was a serial killer. And they're like, but really, when he was 12, he gave his bike to somebody else. So he was a nice kid, but just life made him go that way. And they're just ignoring all the horrible decisions they also made along the way. This is who they really are. We pick out kind of a moment of like, this is who we really are. Life tells us who we are. <laughs> First John, John would say, if we say we love God, we don't love the people around us. We're a liar. The point is, I don't have anything toward God that I don't express toward other human beings in life. 
And what Paul is saying is, here's how we commend ourselves as ministers, not of, notice, other people, but ministers of God. Again, I'm not a minister of Calvary Chapel or of a theological hobby horse. We're not called to be ministers of Calvinism or Arminianism or whatever our particular theological bent is, nor am I called to be a minister of the Catholic Church. I'm a minister of God. And as individuals, he's the one we end up being accountable to. And Paul says we commend ourselves as ministers of God in relation to actual life. I don't commend myself through a paper that somebody wrote or through some of these other ways that these individuals were talking about. Through what happens in life, this, this is my chance to commend myself as a true servant of God, called to his purposes. In, right off the bat, he says, patience. That word has the idea of endurance, not just waiting a really long time, but enduring under general conditions. And I think that's really kind of a description of everything else that follows. The real minister of God, and I think this is important, is going to endure. They're going to stick it out. Not always going to be perfect, but they're going to be there with Jesus. There's no retirement from ambassadorship in the kingdom of heaven or from being a servant of Jesus. Even when I step into heaven, that's still my role. John 12, 26, Jesus would say this, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. That's how I know I'm a servant of God, if I'm where he is. If I follow him, stick it out, stay where I'm supposed to be, do what I'm supposed to do. The disciples, you give them credit. They didn't leave him. They stuck it out. It wasn't easy. They had to learn a lot. They made mistakes. But in the end game, they were still there with Jesus. They endured. Paul, right off the bat, he says, patience, endurance. I, I often think he could have escaped. all Like this big list that he lays out here, he really could have escaped most of these things if he just quit. I'm done. Tired of getting beat up, tired of getting thrown in prison, tired of... He could have escaped a lot of this stuff, but he wouldn't have been with Jesus in the same way. That was what his goal was. Through patience, endurance, through tribulations. That's the same word he uses in 1-4 all the way back. It's uh, troubles from all their kind of various angles. Again, a lot of which he could have escaped if he wanted to. Needs. Needs are connected with tribulations. First Thessalonians 3, 7, Paul connects the same words. They, they kind of go together. Tribulations bring about needs. Needs bring about tribulations and necessities in life. Paul found himself in need in a lot of different ways. Distresses, he says. The word has, a, has the idea of having no way of escape. We might say in our language, the walls. I feel like the walls are closing in. That's kind of the picture, coming into a tightened or narrowed space. This, these are the situations that show whether we commend ourselves as ministers of God, servants of his. When I find myself in these places, Paul would say practically, verse 5, in stripes, that would include either with rods or whips. We know that happened to Paul numerous times. In imprisonments, which had to be tough for a guy like Paul, uh, there are still areas of the world where you know who the real Christians are by meeting them in prison, <laughs> uh, which is sad, but that's a reality. Paul was, at, we don't know how many times he was in prison. He was at least in prison four times, Philippi, Jerusalem, Caesarea, and Rome. Uh, outside of that, he could have been thrown in prison other times. We're not sure. Tumults has the idea of unruly mobs. Uh, tragically, our culture is becoming more accustomed to those, but it's a dangerous thing to have 
a group of people in a mode of anarchy and be trapped in the middle of that. Paul was in those scenarios regularly. Labors, that's just work. We know Paul was bivocational. He was a tent maker. But I think we also underestimate the literal distances Paul had to walk. The, the places he had to travel, the effort it was to get places in the world, the danger of that, on top of the effort he put in teaching and ministering. So he, he labored. It wasn't easy going for Paul. Uh, he wasn't taking a lot of, you know, golf trips. Right? He, he worked. Sleeplessness. We know one of the things Paul says is he labored during the day and he would teach them at night from house to house. So we know the story he was teaching late one night and the guy Eutychus falls out of the window and dies. <laughs> so they're tired. It worked all day, maybe traveled long distances, and then he's teaching late into the night. If you fall asleep, God bless you, right? These, these believers did their best and they worked and they, they got tired. Fastings, that word seems to have the idea more of want of food. It could be religious fastings, but the context seems to relate that. Literally, they did not have meals at time. Um, that became a regular thing for him. Verse 6, these are some, I'm moving out of the practical, some of the spiritual. By purity, a, a minister commends himself by purity, sexually emotive. Certainly in modesty, you become a witness through purity in our world and particularly even in that world. You know, in, in that world, sexuality had its own rampant courses. In our world, it's the same. And in every world and in every culture, what Jesus says and what God has designed about purity is radical. And what that becomes is a witness. You become a minister of Christ in knowledge. The idea is holding truth and mature understanding. I don't think it's just facts. Paul had numerous discussions with stronger and weaker believers in relation to their consciences and the things they could do and not do. He did the same thing in writing to Corinth and Rome. And the reality is God had given him a certain maturity in Christ it's not necessarily always wrong. Some of us are just in the position where we're newly saved and we're learning, and that's where we should be. By long-suffering, that word tends to lend itself to the idea of with people more so than circumstances. Paul was long-suffering with sinners and immature believers. He didn't write people off. Even these Corinthians, it would have been easy to write them off, but he loved them. He was long-suffering. And kindness, uh, and which can be more of what we do and how we do it. Kindness is something, but it's also how we do things. Certainly, the Bible tells us that God is kind. Luke 6.35 says, Love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Jesus tells us that's what God is like. He's kind to unthankful and evil people. Which is good because that was all of us. At some point at least. That's what God is like. And a minister can commend himself as a true minister of Christ in that way. It's not a lot of kindness in the world. Particularly that we live in. And a little bit of kindness could be an easy witness. The Holy Spirit, he says, by the Holy Spirit, which is funny because it seems a strange place to add the Holy Spirit in here since the Holy Spirit is the beginning of the work of the life of God in us. But I think Paul's point is simply once we've begun our new life with a divine miracle, it's not like we're done now with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to continue to be a part of every work in our lives. That divine plus should still get added to whatever else we're doing in life. Whether it's your family or your career or your friendships or your ministry, there should still be a, an obvious element of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Sincere love, 
Love without hypocrisy is the idea. We say in the Romans, let love be without hypocrisy. There's no fake love or affectation there. It does seem like the early church was literally so loving that to fit in, you had to fake it if you didn't have it. Right? That's why Ananias and Sapphira had to act like they gave more than they did. Because apparently that's what the tone and tenor was. And we shouldn't fake our love. Uh, we don't have to pretend we have something we don't. Uh, we can ask God for more love. But, you know, if you want to slander somebody and you don't, that, that's a way of loving them. You don't have to act like you're ready to bless them if God hasn't worked that in your heart yet. You know, you don't need to fake it either way. But you love sincerely with all that you have, God and the other people around us. That's what we're called to do. Let love be without hypocrisy. He says in verse 7, by the word of truth, we have the word of truth, the word of God. And I think we can just state that, and that could seem like a simple statement, but it is a really important statement in the world we live in. It's a big thing to say truth comes from God and not your feelings. Truth comes from God and not what you feel your gender is. Truth comes from God and not what you think is a sincere religion. Truth comes from God and God alone and not anywhere or anything else. Truth comes from God. And we have the word of truth. We don't have our own beliefs. We don't just have our own thoughts. This is what makes people upset, but it's also what makes people saved. To say there is one truth and it's God's. And we have it, not because we're better than other people, because God saved us. And we can say to other people the same truth, be reconciled to God. Because that's the truth. You need to be reconciled to God. And you can be. The truth of God, and I think Paul connects these on purpose. He always does this. And the power of God, the evident supernatural work that there should be something of the Lord in our service to him and in the truth and in the message. Paul didn't want his word to be in word only, but the gospel to come in word and power to make the difference in people's hearts and lives. Again, there's a false type of message out there that the Bible says would come, Paul would write and say, there's going to be those that have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Right? There's big pushes in our culture for people to sit in church on a Sunday and just be reminded that they're saved so they can go live in sin the whole rest of the week or identify themselves that way. Right? Big pushes to be a gay Christian, which is an oxymoron, because you are neither that, that is not the truth, nor does it recognize the power of God to save somebody from a sinful identity. So... The whole world out there is pushing, and there's a whole element that you can both deny the truth of God and the power of God and have God. But you can't. Paul says a true minister is going to be recognized in having the truth of God and the power of God. And they're going to be evident. Galatians 2.8, the apostles saw this. Paul would say, he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. Paul's basically just acknowledging we looked at Peter and God's power was in Peter's life toward Jews. And then we saw what he was doing in my life and God's power was in my life toward Gentiles. And we went and did the thing where God's power was evident. That's what we did. The power of God was there. And that's what I was involved in and gave myself to. He says, next, the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. I think that's the man or woman righteousness. Somebody said easy way to remember it is rightness with God and men. Certainly, Jesus Christ makes us righteous, but this is a man or woman. I think the idea is who's covered on every side by right actions with God and men. There's a Christian witness, a recognition of the Lord's work and a life lived in the middle of a battle against those things. Now, verses 8 through 10, as Paul goes here, he's switching a little bit. 
And he's going to bring these kind of contrasts where we find joyful light and then sorrowful shadow, shadows kind of both moving in the Christian life. And I think some of this is a description of those who knew him after the flesh versus the spirit. But again, these are contrasts that every Christian is going to find in their life. And I think the reality is the more we become like Christ, the more we will find these contrasts. So if you will, let's walk through this here. Verse 8, Paul would basically say, by honor and dishonor, the idea being the more Paul became like Jesus, the more some people honored him and the more some people dishonored him. The more some people recognized the work of God there and they were blessed by it and they loved that apostle Paul, and the more other people looked at this dude and hated him. By honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report. The more Paul reflected Christ, the more people talked about him for evil, and the more people talked about him for good. People loved Paul and the Apostle Paul. They said great things about Paul, and then there was a whole lot of people who also said evil things about Paul. And the more he became like Christ, the more both of these things existed. Again, the more you get made like Christ, the more you get conformed into his image and likeness, people trash Jesus a lot. Called him crazy, said he was a drunkard, said he was wicked because he hung out with sinners, said he had Satan, cast out demons by the power of Satan, slandered him, right? The reality is, the more you become like Christ, the more these things will be a reality. For evil or for good, as deceivers and yet true. The idea is literally leading people astray. The more Paul became like Christ, the more some people said he leads us in the truth, and the more other people said he's a cult leader. Right? This guy's a deceiver. He's just tricking people for himself. Or, no, this guy's telling us the truth. He needed to listen to what he's saying. And it just continued to grow. And the same thing people are going to say about us. Verse 9, as unknown yet well-known, unknown on earth, he was, he was less popular on earth. He was probably way more popular when he was a Pharisee. But certainly he was well-known in humble Christian realms and in heaven and hell. We had that story of the sons of Sceva where the guys try to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus and Paul, and the demons are like, yeah, we know Jesus, we know Paul. We don't know you. That's always a bad scenario there. If you're like, is that in the Bible? Yeah, read the Bible, it's awesome. But he was well-known in some arenas, but not others. Not others. The same thing will happen to us. We're not going to be well-known in certain areas of this world. Not only that, Paul will go on, he'll say, as dying and behold, we live. Certainly he's talked about this, dying to himself in a position of literal near, phys literal physical death and also spiritual death, but finding life in God. I, he was probably literally stoned to death. It seems like he died in that moment. The Lord raised him back up. But he also had never lived until he found Jesus Christ. He, he had to die to himself. And he would say, all those things that I used to consider important, my reputation in the world, my place as a Pharisee, who I was as an Israelite, look at my culture, my race, right, the tribe I was a part of. I can't all those things but done. I'm dead to all that now but I'm alive in God in a new way. Found a new place of life. And the more we become like Christ, the more we'll find that. More he became like Christ, the more he was chastened yet not killed. The idea there is chastened in the flesh. It's discipline, but not put to death. I think the picture here is the vine dresser cutting what should go so that the rest of the vine can live and produce fruit. God working in him removing the things that need to be gone and bringing to life the things that he was doing in Paul. 
And Paul was blessed by that. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 11, when we're judged, we're chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. It was a good thing. 10, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, which can seem weird, but the idea is Paul found sorrow on earth, but he always found more joy in the Lord. You can look at a boxer after he wins a match and he's holding that belt and his face is all beat up, but he's happy. And you think more of the rejoicing than the fact that the dude's all beat up. He's going to hurt for a while. Right? He has sorrow, but he's rejoicing. Right? Jesus uses a picture of a woman in, in labor pains who's going through anguish or sorrows, but then has that child, and you just think of the rejoicing. Right? You, you have that baby, and people are taking pictures of the baby, and the mom's kind of trying to get, let me fix my hair real quick, you know? The, the, she went through sorrow. It's real, but there's something that's deeper, that's more real. And Paul could say, he had sorrows. Certainly, I think he had sorrows for the churches, for other people, for the lost. There are things in the Christian life that are always heavy. The more you love people, the more you're going to have a certain amount of sorrow. But the more you love God, you will have a continual river of joy. Both of the things can be true, but one transcends the other. Yeah, sorrowful, but always rejoicing. That's what Paul was like. He says, as poor, yet making many rich, Paul certainly had poverty on earth, but he found more in giving to others and in serving the Lord. He didn't care. They didn't have great prospects on earth anymore. He cared about what he had done in the Lord. And finally, he says, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Paul realized, I might have nothing in this world. Like when Paul died, he didn't, he didn't have a big will to leave people things. Didn't have a lot to leave behind. Says, I'm really not possessing much in this world, but I have all things in God. You can lose anything in this world, and God is a substitute. But if you lose God, nothing is a substitute for God. God's a substitute for everything else. And Paul said, I know I have all things in him. I have Christ, and in, in him I have all things. I'm not missing out on anything. He's my portion. So he says, that's how we commend ourselves as ministers in these things. Our characters shown in these things. And are we always getting thrown back by these contrasts, by, by ways that go back and forth of sorrow or joy or poverty or riches or honor or dishonor, or people speaking good about you or people speaking evil about you? Do we get too high off of praise or too low off of dishonor? That's the question for us. Because the middle ground I'm just aiming for is, am I a minister of Jesus Christ? Am I serving him? Because if I can get there, then I don't got to get too high off of what people say positively or too low off of what people say negatively. Do I commend myself as a minister of God? That's why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 3, Therefore let no one boast in men. All things are yours. And you're Christ, and Christ is God's. I don't need to boast in anything about man. I need to boast in him. Now, Paul will say in 11, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now, in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. Paul's point is, Look, I'm not holding back. He said, my heart and my mouth is open. I'm just sharing freely with you. His heart was wide open to them. And he's saying, if there's any coldness, it's not on my side. Notice he says, you're not restricted by us. You're restricted by your own affections. If you're cold toward us, it's not because of us. I love you. I'm saying that openly and freely. If there's coldness, it's on your end, not my end. And Paul was not okay with that. 
He says, in return for the same, you also be open. He says, I'm speaking as the children, not just because they're little. little. I think it's as a spiritual father. Like, I want you to, to express your love back. I'm not happy with you living at a distance. He wants a relationship with them. Now, he's going to, from really 14 down to 7-1, we have a little interlude. Because if you stop right in 13 and then you pick up in verse 2 of chapter 7, notice he says, open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. It picks up the same language there about them having an open heart to him because he has an open heart to them. So from 6-14 down to 7-1, you're going to have this little interlude. And some people have a hard time making the connection here. I think it's clear, because Paul's going to say, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What Paul is doing is he knows that ungodly influences have connected their heart to the world and caused them distance from God and him. This is why there's an issue, that he has love toward them and they're cold toward him, because they're connected with something else. We know from 1 Corinthians, part of the problem in the church was, Corinth had affected the church more than the church had affected Corinth. They were infected with worldly thought, worldly philosophy, worldly lifestyle and action, worldly sexual morals, worldly ideas of drinking, worldly ideas of spiritual things. They were infected with the world. And what Paul is saying now is he's going to throw in this interlude. You got to be separate from that. Because that's where the distance between both the Lord and him is coming in. So Paul states clearly what the problem is. Verse 14 again. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. No doubt this would bring the Old Testament law to mind. Deuteronomy 22.10. You shall not plow with an ox and donkey together. Uh, The obvious incongruity would cause problems with a literal yoke, the wooden yoke. Those two animals would not plow together well. And obviously the person who's doing that doesn't care very much about the animals or their field because it's not going to work too well. So the, the idea is these two animals are totally different animals of totally different natures. And the spiritual principle is the Christian and the unbeliever are totally different animals with totally different natures. And if you try to yoke them together to do the same thing, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's going to hurt both them and the thing you're trying to do. Now, this section is spoken about often in context of a believer marrying an unbeliever. Paul is not talking about marriage here. Really, Paul covered those issues in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I think that's why he doesn't speak about marriage directly, because he already did that with them. He already said all those things to them. He already made it clear they weren't supposed to marry an unbeliever and talked about all those marriage issues. Though the spiritual principle Paul is bringing out here does still apply to that situation. So we know Satan has convinced people that they'll do an unsaved partner good, uh, But the reality is they just harm themselves and others. Because how can we lead others in a life of truth and obedience by starting with a step of willful disobedience to satisfy ourselves? We can't. That's what Satan always wants to trick us into. And the sad results are evident in a lot of marriages and in a lot of places. There's other spiritual principles like don't be deceived. God isn't mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he reap. Now, it's a totally different situation to have two people who are unsaved and one person to get saved and be in that marriage. Again, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about it and says you should stay in that marriage if they want to stay with you. That's fine. He gives different rules. But to just say, I'm going to willfully ignore what you tell me for this thing I want, that's what this spiritual principle is talking about here. There needs to be separation. We can't just ignore the difference in our lives and the lives of people who don't know the Lord. Separation, not isolation, is what he's arguing for. We don't become monks. Don't listen to this section and run away and build a house in the middle of nowhere so that you never have any negative influences in you. That's not what it's talking about. That's not what Jesus did. It's not what the apostles did. 
you can be separate without being isolated. That's what this is talking about. And Paul is going to lay out that idea. So he does that with five rhetorical questions here. The first one is this, when he says, don't be, this is a command, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now the questions, what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? The word for fellowship there in the Greek is unique. It's used only there in the Bible. And he's going to use a couple different unique words here in this section. And it has the basic idea of just sharing. And Paul's asking, what priorities or values does the Holy Spirit share with the world? It's a rhetorical question. What about God's laws and the world's laws? How do the righteous laws of God and the lawlessness of the world go together? We see this contrasted all over in the world we live in right now. That's the reality. In God's eyes, it is right for Israel to be in his land. There's a lot of arguments about that. It's not Israel's land. It's not Hamas's land. It's not the Palestinians' land. It's God's land. And he can do what he wants with it. And it is righteous for him to give it to whoever he wants. It's God's righteous idea that an unborn child will live safely in a mother's womb. It's God's righteousness that he is the only creator of the world. It's God's command that we shouldn't look on the nakedness of others on our TV or phones or Pornhub or OnlyFans. It's God's law that we shouldn't steal even if Wawa doesn't care or anywhere else. It's God's righteous law that we're not supposed to lie or commit adultery or have any sex outside of marriage, heterosexual or homosexual. Uh, we could go through the list, right? What, what is the right? And God only takes joy in his righteousness. What sharing do the righteousness of God and the lawlessness of the world have together? And the point is, the Holy Spirit is supposed to live in us. So what do they share? What communion, he asked secondly, has light with darkness? The Greek word for communion is koinonias, the idea of selling all that we have and going into business together. As Paul's asking, doesn't that happen or does that happen with light and dark in the world or in nature? No, light dispels darkness. It doesn't go into business with it. It's not saying, hey, let's the two of us work together to accomplish this task here. That's not how it works in the world. People who live in the light see things as they are. People who live in the darkness are lost. God's rule between light and darkness is separation, not fusion. And it's the same thing with us in the world. One of Satan's best lies is to convince Christians that fellowship in the world will give them greater usefulness. Listen to this, because this is everywhere. If you do something the world likes or you just cave in some scenario, then you'll have greater usefulness. You have a greater opportunity to speak to the world. You have a greater opportunity to minister to people. Listen to me. My goal as a Christian is not usefulness. It's obedience. I'm not called to make myself useful. God doesn't need help. He's not out there like, oh, man, I got to get these lunches done. If I don't have a couple other hands, they're not going to get out of the door in time. Right. He's he he doesn't need help. He's going to accomplish his tasks. He doesn't need help from any one of us. He's not struggling with the usefulness of the world. What he wants is obedient sons and daughters. And the, the moment I realize my objective as a Christian is not to be useful, is to be obedient, it just clears everything up. It clears everything up. That's all I got to do. God does what he pleases, I do what I'm told. And I don't have to buy into shifting my obedience to somehow placate the world, hoping that then they will get saved. And it never works. It's always a compromise where Satan ends up winning. I don't ever surrender my obedience to God for usefulness. Christ's example 
is to surrender his life before his obedience. He died before he was disobedient. That's our example. God, you can do whatever you want. He can accomplish whatever task he wants. He just needs me to do what he tells me to do. That's our goal as believers. Now, I know that's not a popular message in our world, but I will hold to it because it's biblical. And I know this is the type of section that makes people mentally want to get into like a bomb shelter and cover up, right? Like, oh my gosh, what do we even do in the world? But the reality is, you roll with me here, right? We say these things because they're true. And Paul needed these believers to see this. Some people are worried you're going to make people leave the church with that type of attitude. And you know what? People will leave the church, and we should weep for them and pray for them. But we should never lie to them or present something that's false. Jesus said no man can serve two masters. You only have one master. I can't serve both. And I'm called to be obedient to that one. And a lot of people leave the church not because they don't believe in God or they hate God, as they just found something they want more than God. And you can't have the dark and the light together. That's why the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus grieved. If he didn't believe what Jesus said, he would have just blown him off, laughed at him, wouldn't have been grieved. But he walked away grieved because he knew he was right. But he, he had something he wanted more than what Jesus offered him. And there's a lot of people who just want something more. And when you say the truth that no man can have two masters, you can't have fellowship with light and darkness, a lot of people aren't going to like that message. Jesus said, this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That's what Jesus said. It's going to happen. But that's what the truth is. What accord has Christ with Belial? The Greek word there for accord is a musical term. It's only used here in the Bible. The idea is, do Jesus and Satan harmonize? Do they make sweet music together? They're in a band singing the same songs, playing a duet. Jesus isn't involved in his purposes or taking joy in the things that the enemy takes joy in. Does the Holy Spirit love godless songs sung by godless people who don't care anything about God's glory, but instead want it for themselves? He doesn't. He doesn't. First John, John would tell us, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Do we know that? That we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Whose sway are we under? They are different. That is Paul's point. They are different. They are not the same. They are not finding harmony and accord together. What part has a believer with an unbeliever? The Greek word for part has the idea of a portion out of the whole. It's the same word used in Colossians 1.12 where he says, Give thanks to the Father who has made us qualified to be partakers, that's the word, of the inheritance of the saints in light. What portion do we have together? What inheritance do we have together with people who are unsaved? What end goals do we share together? Too often we can get fooled into believing there is one. The unbeliever has no goal to please or glorify God. They have goals to do things, and they're not all horrible. You can have a really civil, nice person, but their goal in life is not to please God or to glorify God. It's to please themselves or to please someone else. But the goal and portion of the Christian is to please and glorify God and to be rewarded in heaven, not here. So really, there's so many things that we wouldn't even care about and that people wouldn't even care about, save for the admiration of the world. Like, people care about watches because of the admiration it gives them. People care about cars or homes, or there are tons of things in the world that if the rest of the world didn't think it was cool, you wouldn't think it was cool either. We wouldn't either. Half of the internet posts would be gone because if everybody thought they were boring, nobody would put them back up. 
right? That's the point. It's the admiration of the world that people are aiming for. That's, that's what they want to be a part of. But that's not what our part is. That's not what our goal is. John Ross McDuff said it like this in his book, The Sermons of John McDuff. Do not be ashamed to confess Christ in your daily life. Oh, how many are so afraid to be deemed pious or religious, afraid to be thought of as enthusiasts, afraid lest men should take knowledge of them that they have been with Jesus. They will strive and struggle and toil to acquire earthly riches, give their whole heart's devotion to the world, waste the energies of the mind and body in the effort to outstrip others in the race for wealth. They are not ashamed to be known as worldlings, but they are ashamed to be deemed religious. They can be cold, unimpressed, and indifferent when a religious subject is brought before them, but warm, interested, and engrossed when a conversation is of the world, its business, its schemes, and its projects. Brethren, let it not be thus with you. It was the same in his day. It's the same in our day. It was the same with Paul and these Corinthians. What part do we share? What agreement, he says, has the temple of God with idols? That word for agreement is another unique word, only used here in the Bible, has the idea of joining or fitting together. Where do idols and God join and fit together? There never has been, there is not now, and there never will be any religious unity between God Almighty and any other God. Never has been. Never will be. He does not fit or join with any other God. The claims of Jesus Christ can't be joined to the claims of any other religious figure, no matter what Oprah says. All right? Whoever it is, Oprah, Rob Bell, Bono, coexist, right? Whatever, whatever people want to throw out there, we're going to get Jesus and these other things, the Pope, whoever you want to say, and connect these things together, there is no joining of the temple of God and idols. And this is a problem. Idols were a problem for the church in Corinth and the connection to them, which he wrote about in 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Again, that can bother people. That's what Jesus says about himself. And these believers were a temple of the Holy Ghost. Their body was a temple of the Holy Ghost. You say, you're not your own, you're bought with a price. Collectively, when believers come together, they are the temple of God. Jesus said the same thing about his own body, that it was a temple, the Holy Spirit. John chapter 2. You and I are supposed to be reflective of this. We don't join to the worship of other gods. We're not connected with their temple. God is a jealous God. And in the end, he's not going to be time-sharing us with other gods. And so Paul's whole point is, how do these things fit together? In every scenario, they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't. Do you see this? So here's what he says. As God has said then, I will dwell in them and walk among them and be their God and they shall be my people. He's going to quote here from Isaiah. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. God's end goal is to dwell with us, to walk with us, and to be our God. And we can't love God and love the things of the world. First John two fifteen says, don't love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The Holy Spirit is in us, and he's not loving the fallen world system, its laws, its lies, its harmony, its unbelief, and its false religion. It's not loving any of those things. He is loving God and his truth. So what Paul quotes in Isaiah 52, 11 there was a quote given to Israel to escape from Babylon, which was the land of idols. And he's calling them come out from among them and be separate. Again, separation, not isolation. Come out and be separate. Be different in body, mind, and heart. Sometimes literally your body will have to separate. That is true. 
from the unsaved world. There are places a Christian should not be or go or be involved in. But most of the time, we're separate in mind and in heart. I have the mind of Christ. I don't have the thoughts of the world. I don't have the truths of the world. I don't have the desires of the world or the life of the world or the nature of the world. And you can be an obvious separate person in your home and in your workplace and in your private life with the Lord. And that's what we're supposed to be. And that's what God calls these believers to. Because he wants to be a father to us. And he promises that we can be his sons and his daughters. And when we stand in eternity, and this God is your God, you're going to be shocked for all eternity that this God is your God. He is our God. You're going to be amazed by that. He dwells with us. He walks with us. It is going to be the biggest miracle of eternity. Not only that, he's our father and he calls me his son or his daughter. And the fact that we can actually believe or are often tricked into falling for the lie that we've given up something for that is shocking. I don't surrender anything for that. He surrendered for that. Whatever I give up in the world is nothing. What he gave to make this possible is everything. It is not difficult for me to turn from the world in comparison to what Jesus had to go through so that I could be called to him. That's, that's the truth. <laughs> I, I don't go through anything difficult. He went through the difficult thing. And he gives us way more than we're leaving behind because we're leaving behind nothing. What is passing? What we don't even own anyway. And he calls us, even though we're not perfect, to himself because he wants to be our father. Not just because he has hard rules about the world, but because he loves us. And he wants to be in fellowship with us. And he knows if the world infects us, then it will affect our fellowship with him and with other people who are in fellowship with him. Just like happens in human relationships, something affects one person that affects their fellowship with other people and then the whole groups of people connected to them. The world affects our hearts and then it affects our fellowship with God and the people connected with God. And Paul's saying, God isn't cool with that. He loves us. And he wants us to recognize we live in a day of grace and we can come to him and call out to him and he will help us. And he will walk with us and he will help cleanse us. And he'll be a father to us and we'll be his sons and his daughters. And there's no greater promise that we're ever going to receive and no greater gift that we're ever going to be given. And just because we don't recognize how true it is doesn't mean it's not true. And that's why Paul wants them to see this. Therefore, he ends up saying in verse 7, or chapter 7, verse 1, Therefore, having these promises of God dwelling among us, of walking with us, of being our God and us being his people, the promise that God is my father and I'm his son, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's what he calls us to. That's, that's why he calls us to be separate from the world. Not just because he needs some hard thing, but because he loves us. Because we're beloved. So let's stand. We're going to pray. I was trying to get to verse 4 of chapter 7, but I don't have the time. Two weeks, if the Lord tarries. But I would just like to say, certainly in all of our lives, there's a place where we're going to be challenged. But if you're here and you have not been walking with the Lord and the grace of God has been in vain in your life, it doesn't have to be anymore. God loves you. And he's calling you to return to himself. And if you're like, I don't even know what that would look like, that's fine. Even if you thought you knew what it would look like, you wouldn't. 
Just come to him and he will help you. And he'll be gracious to you. And he'll let you know that he's your father. And he loves you as his son or his daughter. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you tell us these things. You didn't have to tell us these things. You didn't have to speak the truth clearly. You didn't have to impress upon us your heart in this way. You didn't have to call us so clearly your sons and daughters and yourself our father. So we thank you that that's your heart. We thank you that your heart is wide open to us, more so than Paul's was to the Corinthians. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would remove coldness on our end. Forgive us, Lord. You know there are places where our hearts would rather be somewhere else, where our minds would rather be somewhere else. But we know you are our greatest good and our great reward. So, Lord, draw us near to yourself. Help us where we need help. Cleanse us and allow us to be separate with you in this world for whatever time you give us here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.